0: Okay, let's go back in time to 1997. Semi-Charmed Life by Third Eye Blind is on the radio. If you're a girl, you've seen Titanic three or four times already. If you're a boy, you're at the peak of your DiCaprio hatred, which you'll reluctantly reverse in ten years when you see The Departed. And if you remember this period, you might recall that there was another cultural force that was taking the country by storm at this point, and that was this guy.
1: I am El Nino! (laughs) The tropical storms must bow before El Nino. <laughs> Yo soy El Nino. For those of you who don't habla Espanol, El Nino is Spanish for the Nino.
0: That, of course, was the late, great Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live. And the real El Nino was this weather pattern that was seemingly behind every shower, snowflake, or sunny day that happened that year. But it gives you an idea of just how much El Nino had penetrated the cultural zeitgeist at that period. Blaming things on El Nino, not just the weather, had become a kind of cultural pastime. A baseball player doesn't make a catch? That's El Nino. Dog ate your homework? El Nino. A sitting U.S. president has an extramarital affair with a 22-year-old intern? El Nino. So, that was what it was like to live through 1997 and 1998. Almino's powers eventually dissipated, both as force of nature and as cultural icon. But he did not go away forever. As a matter of fact, he's been hiding out for all these years somewhere in the South Pacific Ocean. And this year, he might be back. I'm Jack Dillon, and today on the show, El Niño vs. the California Drought. The most famous Southern Oscillation in the nation is back, and that could spell trouble for the dry spell that's gripped California for years. But does El Niño still have the Niños to do the job? Plus, flame wars. At the end of the show, we'll consider the merits of a commercially available flamethrower and ask ourselves, why is this taking so long? Kevin Dupsick is out today. He is on a summer Friday. For now, we go to a story about a boy. This is How Your World Works. So you might have read in the news lately that El Nino is supposedly making a comeback, that this could be an El Nino year. But if you're like us, that might have got you wondering, what the heck is this El Nino anyways, and why would it go away and then come back? So we looked into this, and here's some misconceptions you might have had about El Nino and what it is not. It is not an ocean current. It is not a hurricane. It is not a comet that returns every eight years. El Nino is not even an invisible friend that only the west coast of America can see. So to get answers, we turn to meteorologist Tom DiLiberto from the Climate Prediction Center at NOAA. And just a little note here, know that, unfortunately, Kevin and I's voices are kind of similar, so you're going to hear me talking at the beginning, and then from then on, it will be him asking questions to Tom. Hey, Tom. So we were wondering if we could just start out by asking you just what El Nino is.
1: Um, El Nino is uh, at least... El Nino is part of something we call the El Nino Southern Oscillation. During El Nino, what we see um, is where we normally see this warmer pool of water across the the western Pacific Ocean, we see it slosh into the central and eastern Pacific Ocean. And so it's it's this broad pattern in the central and eastern Pacific Ocean that could have ramifications very far away from the central, uh, from the Pacific Ocean because it can change the atmospheric circulation uh, really across the globe. Basically, it's a warming of the ocean surface, or above-average sea surface temperatures in the central and eastern tropical Pacific Ocean.
0: So El Niño is this warm patch of water, essentially, out somewhere in the South Pacific Ocean. And this certain section of ocean, it's being influenced by many things. There are the trade winds that are blowing, and there is the overall surface temperature. And these things are going up and down and fluctuating all the time. Now, every seven years or so, you get the right combination of circumstances that cause this patch of the ocean to get even warmer. How much warmer? Well, specifically, scientists like Tom DiLabretto are watching this patch to see if it gets 0.5 degrees warmer than average for at least a three-month period. And What that means is that you can call an El Nino year, an El Nino season. But whether or not it will be a strong El Nino or a weak El Nino, that is still in the cards. For a very strong El Nino, you would need a rise in ocean surface temperatures to about 2.5 degrees above average. 2.5 degrees above average was, by the way, the most powerful El Nino ever recorded, and that was in 1997 and 1998. This year, we don't know how high it will get, but scientists are expecting that it could reach around 1.7 degrees above average. That makes a pretty strong El Nino. But why should it matter if this particular spot in the ocean is a little bit warmer than it usually is? I mean, nobody lives around there. This is basically the most vacant part of the world. Why should this matter to anyone? Well, you've heard about the butterfly flapping its wings and causing a tsunami. This isn't quite like that, but it's kind of close.
1: So, basically, you, you're, you're moving this warm water into the central and eastern Pacific Ocean. That's moving the thunderstorms, that convection, as we call it, to make it sound cooler, um, into the central and eastern Pacific Ocean. What that does is that when you when you when you move that convection over, it creates warmer than average temperatures higher up in the atmosphere. And what that can do is change our jet streams. And the jet streams are those areas of really fast winds that are roughly 4 to 8 kilometers or miles, I think 4 to 8 miles in the atmosphere. And they basically serve as a storm track. During El Nino, they become stronger in the Pacific Ocean. And they basically you see it extend all across the Pacific Ocean and across the southern tier of the United States. What that does is help basically steer storm systems potentially into California, across the Gulf Coast, into Texas, and in which is why we generally see, um, in the wintertime at least, um, a chance for there being above-average precipitation. So basically the, the key is that El Nino is not a storm. It's not going to create, there's no El Nino storm that's going to happen. But it could at least make this situation more conducive for a storm to go to a place consistently during a season.
0: So again, again, we are talking about weather here, you might think, why does any of this matter? Well, it could matter for one reason, because if you look at what's going on in the southwest of America right now, you will notice something that you would not have seen in 1997. Namely, drought. California is in the midst of a major drought right now that's lasted several years. In 2014, a state of emergency was declared because of the drought, and things have not gotten any better since. The drought has all but persisted, bringing with it forest fires, water rationing, and we've by now all seen the pictures of the frighteningly low lakes, some that have dried up completely. A lot of people in California are literally praying for rain right now. So, will El Niño be able to bring the water that California so desperately needs? To answer that, we wanted to talk to both an expert and a local. So we called up Dan Swain of the Department of Environmental and Earth Sciences at Stanford.
2: Well, I think the most important thing to keep in mind when it comes to the impacts of El Nino in California is that uh, it really matters how strong the event is. It's not really a question of El Nino versus no El Nino, But when it comes to these really strong events, which the current one really does look like it's becoming, there is a pretty substantial signal for increased wintertime precipitation in California. And so, the first hurdle of there being uh, an El Nino event that is strong rather than weak to moderate, I think we sort of have that. We're already seeing conditions in the equatorial Pacific that are indicative of a very strong event, um, certainly from an oceanic perspective, and at this point it's looking like the atmosphere is responding to these really warm ocean conditions in a way that we might expect from a stronger event.
0: So, argument number one for El Nino fighting the drought, a strong El Nino season, which it looks like we will have. But the type of rainfall that comes with big storms, typical of an El Nino season, would likely drop too much water at once. And for California, with its dry soil, that could not only mean flooding, but also mudslides. Droughts cause dry soil, which actually diminishes the soil's capacity to take in water once it does arrive. That's known as an infiltration problem. So when a lot of water lands at once, it might not seep into the ground, but run off of it, carrying a lot of the topsoil with it. Plus, you have the many forest fires that have been happening in the state
2: you know from the perspective of causing hazardous mudslides and debris flows and these really intense fire scars do cause big problems in fact we've actually with some of the unusual summer precipitation that we saw in southern california a couple weeks ago in the earlier part of july we actually saw some mudslides and debris flows in the middle of summer as a result of fire that had happened just a couple of weeks earlier um... already and so you know the peak of california's fire season doesn't even happen until late summer or even early fall so we not even there yet, and so the fire season is liable to get worse before it gets better.
0: The other thing you have to keep in mind is just how that water is actually captured and stored. It's one thing for a lot of rain to fall in an area that helps farmers' fields and the trees. But what you really want is to be able to hold on to that water so that you can use it a week from now, a month, or a year. And this is what we mean when we talk about reservoirs. Now, when I say reservoirs, you might be thinking something that's man-made, and there are certainly man-made lakes and dams, of course, and things like that. But really, reservoirs are just anything that can store water. So, one, there are the lakes, and we've talked about that and how low they've been getting. And two, there's the groundwater, what's called the aquifer. Now, a lot of that water is so deep in the ground that it took many, many years to get there. And it's not like most water that falls as rain will eventually be able to seep down there. Most of it will run off the land and make its way back to the ocean. So in fact, in many ways, the groundwater is almost like a finite resource because it's so hard to replenish. And this is why it's such a problem that California has been depleting its groundwater in this emergency
2: and those are in extremely poor shape throughout California right now as well and um, that's another sort of uh, that's another situation where um uh, intensely falling precipitation that quickly runs off is does not help recharge as much as something that fell more gradually over time because again a lot of that water instead of sitting and standing and soaking in slowly ends up flowing into the river systems and eventually out to the ocean very you know in relatively short order so You know, it it does actually matter how quickly precipitation falls and whether it falls as rain rather than snow, Um, in addition to the total amount of water that's actually, you know, making it to California.
0: So, there is actually a third type of reservoir, and this is a very important place where California stores its water. You might picture California as the sunshine state, but of course California has a lot of mountains, and some of those mountains are so high that they have snow on top all year round. And this is a very handy system because that snow is of course water, and the water can be stored there in a solid state until the warmer months when it melts and runs down and can be collected. But of course, if you've been following the California drought at all, you know that this is a problem. This year, 2015, was the hottest year on record globally, as was the year before that. California's winters have been getting warmer and warmer. Warmer winters mean less snow. That's less snow to use as water when you're trying to battle what is the state's worst drought in history.
2: And the strongest signal from El Nino is for the total amount of water, not necessarily for, you know, gentle rains that produce snow in the mountains. Um, There's a lot of evidence that a winter like this one would probably be another warmer than average winter, which probably means, at least at the lower elevations where it would often snow at, you know, 5, 6, 7,000-foot level um, in the Sierra Nevada Mountains, would be less likely to receive snow. The really high elevations, up at ski resorts at 10,000 feet, 11,000 feet, Good chance they would still get snow even in a winter like this, but it's those critical sort of middle elevation zones that are closer to the snow line that might be most affected by a particularly warm and potentially wet winter.
0: For years now in California, it has been a tradition for the governors to go out and measure the snowpacks. This April, Governor Jerry Brown went out with the media to survey the snow, except there was none. Now, they weren't surprised by this. They already knew what to expect before they got there. Warmer global temperatures and climate change have now eliminated much of the snow that the state used to receive. But the image was still striking, which was the idea. You can compare previous year's photos and see the snow getting lower and lower and lower. Until this year, the governor and his team were just standing in a grassy field. No snow, no water.
2: I mean, I think that, you know, the the best, case plausible outcome for a winter like this would be you know, a year where we receive only 150% of what we normally would get and it happens to fall um, relatively well spaced out over the course of the winter and we get some really cold storms that drop a lot of snow in the mountains um, and we don't have any really warm spells in between them. I mean, that would be an ideal scenario, but uh, several of those things are pretty unlikely to happen this winter. One of those is that it's it's, it's really unlikely to be cold uh, this winter in California. So that, that part of it is likely to be sort of nixed. And you know, El Nino events, at least the really strong ones, do tend to be associated with some of the, you know, the, there is an increased likelihood of big storms. And so you know, if you receive more precipitation overall and there's even a marginally increased risk of seeing those intense events, it means that your soils are more likely to be saturated that sort are of preceding these big storms, and so your overall flood risk probably does go up. Um, so you know there, there there is a sweet spot where rains would fall relatively gently and as snow in the mountains, but that's not necessarily those aren't necessarily the characteristics of a strong El Nino winter in California. So
0: a strong El Nino this year would likely mean more storms and rainfall for at least Southern California, but it will also probably mean a warmer winter, so less of a chance for that water to stick around in the form of snowpacks. Plus, there is the fact that El Nino itself may no longer behave predictably due to the hotter global temperatures. Daniel Swain says that new patches of warm water in the ocean could mean that a strong El Nino no longer has the same characteristics that it did in the past. So, for anyone who might have wanted to see El Nino come to the rescue of California, it seems unlikely that there'll be the right combination of factors to make that happen. In fact, there is the chance that El Nino could make things worse if you consider flooding. But Daniel Swain says that the only good news is that California is so bad right now that basically anything would be better.
2: The reality is, with any kind of above-average winter, California will be in better shape than it currently is. But that's mostly because it's hard to be in worse shape than we currently are. You know, this is sort of the superlative drought in the observed record. And so, uh, you know, water is a good thing, even if it does fall as Rain rather than snow that will certainly top up the reservoirs. I mean, it's not like oh, it's all going to go out to the ocean. We will have more stored after a wet winter of any kind than we do now. But the problem is, is that you know our long-term planning horizons really do depend on things like you know the snowmelt, the time-release snowmelt, and this relatively slow percolation of water into the ground. And so, if we don't get that, we don't really alleviate a long-term Drought.
0: Thank you to Tom D. Liberto and Nick Swain for that interview. Well, it's time for another edition
3: of everybody's favorite game, Stupid or Amazing. Joining me today, Associate Editor Mac Ulay. Hi, thanks for having me and design director Michael Wilson.
4: Hey, thanks for having me.
3: Subject of today's game is the X-15 flamethrower from X-Matter, which you can see online at their aptly named website, throwflame.com. So the X-15 is a consumer flamethrower. It's $1,600, you wear a canister on your back, you hold a gun in your hand, you throw flame. On the website, they talk about a couple of different things you might want to use this for. Controlled burns, brush fires, movie props, getting rid of snow or ice, pyrotechnic events such as the 4th of July, and we're going to tell you if it's stupid or amazing.
4: I think this thing is right up there with some <laughs> of the best thing man has ever come up with. Um, it's just absolutely incredible.
3: Well, I don't think you can undersell the price. I was, I was reading online that before this was out, if you needed a consumer flamethrower, you had to buy a military model, there which were, can cost I like $10,000. Are there were consumer
5: flamethrower, flame, flamethrowers available prior to this? this? I mean, like, or you had to go through the military to get, you, to get yourself set up with one?
3: That, what I've read is you had to go through the military
4: which would be much more expensive so, and and obviously much more time consuming they've cut all the red tape out of the way you could just <laughs> i mean how quick does it get to you can eat like overnight it is like amazon prime just dropped that thing off the next day so
3: it says that they can ship it anywhere um but apparently california and one other state which i which i See, can't that's, remember that's, have some that's, type that's, of regulations Mar- maryland otherwise maryland has. that's yeah. the stupidest thing about this so you don't have to have a permit
4: to have this thing it's amazing you don't have to have a permit so that california and maryland you need one? That's stupid. I think that I think that's the stupid part.
5: Well, is it? Is this going to be like the spice or K two of like, uh, you know, kind of like utility things? Like how long before like we realize that like we have like an illegal drug in our hands that it actually technically isn't <laughs> illegal? Well, you know, it's like it's kind of crazy that I can buy this tomorrow if I wanted to. But thinking about the utility of it, yeah, it's amazing. Like, if, what if, like, Boston last year, if they just took right. a flamethrower to the piles of snow? Oh, can you imagine? We could clear just, the roads in minutes. Like, the, yeah. Entire, yeah. It's amazing. the entire streets department amazing. is walking around with flamethrowers yeah. melting ice on the streets. I would fly to
3: Boston just to watch that for a day. See? Yeah, I mean, I so I think the product's amazing. I actually think the website maybe is stupid, but maybe it's more just the people that run this company. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they're stupid, I'm not sure. But one, one question that I have that I think we have to bring up is that They talk about the mix of fuels you can put into it. And one of the videos shows like how far it shoots if you change the proportions of diesel and gasoline. Now, my thing is, is it really true that I can just mix whatever ratio I want? Like I'm supposed to experiment? Like it seems like they're implying like, well, if you experiment with the ratios, you know, who knows how far you can shoot.
2: That I feel like there should be better
3: guidance on. (laughs) Does this thing come with an instruction manual, or is it just like two bottles of napalm and a,
4: and a jug of <laughs> yeah, gasoline? Wait, and I thought napalm was an add-on. I thought that was it, like for an additional three hundred dollars. You can order napalm and put it into your flamethrower, which is incredible to me. Like, <laughs> I wish I wish
5: everybody could see the smile napalm? on your face right now. I think it's
4: I think it's amazing that they're doing this and they're getting away with it.
5: And without, I mean, without a Kickstarter, too, mind you, this is, all seems apparently self-funded. I, you know, what, <laughs> if, can you imagine they took this to the the crowdfunding realm? I, they would never get there. I don't think anyone would have been shut down a long time ago.
3: So if you guys got one, do you think, can you think of a legitimate use that you could put it to? Um, I would strap it to the end of a guitar and be in Mad Max, I think oh. is the first thing I would, yeah. would
4: do with it. I, I don't know if there's a legitimate use that I would use it for. I also live in the city, so I don't know what I would, where I would possibly use this thing. But you said like if, if you do have to burn brush, you know there are controlled burns and they do a lot of that like out West. Um, is, I guess that is a safer option to do it. I have no familiarity with that whatsoever.
3: Well, you just moved to Jersey,
4: right? Maybe you'll have well, to do that soon. Yes, yeah, still, still pretty suburban <laughs> so New know if, Jersey. I'm gonna <laughs> walk around Montclair and just start like lighting stuff That's, up yeah. with this flamethrower. I mean, that would be a great way to be, make an entrance to that town. But um, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure they'll they'll be too happy with me if I did that. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know if what the other practical uses poten- like potentially would be. I, it seems like. Lighting your 4th of July bonfire, there seems to be much safer ways to do that from far away than using a flamethrower. But you, if you have a bunch of people and you have a party in your backyard and you want to light a huge fire, that's going to get the biggest applause, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing to do, too. You're also
5: just asking for
4: disaster. But Well, yeah, yeah but there's a lot of stuff asking. Yeah, you can yeah, file a lot of stuff enough. out of that if you, don't, if you don't do it right. So I think in, in their proper hands, this is an absolutely amazing thing.
5: My thought with m- most things that I take under consideration is, if I had a yard and a motorcycle, <laughs> <laughs> I would probably definitely have this thing. But I don't have
4: either of those. You're giving things. me all sorts of ideas because I do right. have a yard and a motorcycle.
5: <laughs> if I had a yard that was a giant field that had to be cleared of brush, yeah, yeah, like, and if I mean, I'm not gonna go out and buy one tomorrow. Or uh, if I did have a yard, I wouldn't go out and buy one tomorrow. But uh, if if the utility of it Served my needs, yeah. Why the hell not? It's cool, and then yeah, you show off while you're, while you're doing it, yeah. And you have your friends come <laughs> over and check this out. I mean, it's almost like it's like a like a bachelor party activity at this point. You know, how you, <laughs> like, <laughs> you have a controlled burn at your bachelor party, right? Well, you can like, you know, how you can like Let's go, go to the gun, gun range, rush, on, like for a bachelor party, and like well, we'll just get a flamethrower for the bachelor party, know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a bunch of dudes like celebrate, like the last time you know, they're gonna all be single or whatever, one of them are, is gonna be. And just just let it rip and throw flame. Man. Yeah, just yeah. go out there and throw
3: flame. So have you flame. been? Throw are you switching the
4: thing, that's to? They say, they say throw flame.
5: Are you switching to amazing? Or are you still about? You still vote stupid? I'm t- I'm conflicted, but I know I have to come down on one side. <laughs> I'm being told stupid. <laughs> I would lean towards stupid. I mean, when I immediately saw this thing, my gut reaction was, this is stupid. Yeah, I went the exact opposite <laughs>
3: direction. I mean, but then, then you
4: look at it oh, it's awesome amazing.
5: <laughs> I I it's but I'm also easily suckered by really cool
3: videos yeah. and that, that one got
5: Production value. Yeah. Production, Production value. value of I'm actually starting to
3: think that we've done like a public disservice by showing you this thing, <laughs> but that's, but I still, I, I vote amazing. Yeah. So. <sighs> I, think, I think it's stupid. Oh, it's amazing. All right. With the two votes, flamethrower, X-15 flamethrower, amazing. Might be the first thing we've deemed amazing by popular vote. Do you remember? Does anyone remember? I
2: think it is. Yeah.
3: All right. That's my
0: first one. Thanks, guys. Excellent. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show. Today's episode was produced by me, Jack Dillon. It's co-written by Kevin Dubsick, who is out on Summer Friday, as I mentioned before. To see a write-up from today's show, you can go to popularmechanics.com slash podcast, or subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a comment. We would love to know what you think of the show. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Eddie Bowers from Panoply, and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. That's it for now. Thanks for listening.